the real addicts. Okay, everybody, welcome to the final February Black History Month episode of the Real Addicts podcast. This is an exciting episode for a lot of reasons, not the least of which is this is a Jonathan pick that is the first time we've done anything I haven't seen. So I'm coming off this shit fresh and ready. First time out itching to talk. Jonathan, break down some thug the hate you give for us. I'm very excited that this conversation is going to happen live on the air because you and I have not even discussed anything that you're feeling or thinking about the movie. So I'm very excited about that. I also wanted to say that I think The Hate You Give is a solid film to close out the month because I think that there's a lot that ties in with the other movies that we've discussed this month. Like Menace to Society, it's about the complexities of growing up in a marginalized community and it explores concepts of systematic racism and the impact of violence. I think with Creed, we talked about the nuances of forming an identity and trying to find your own path. And where do the right thing is the events that lead up to a tragic incident of police brutality. The Hate You Give is about the aftermath of one. And it's a very ambitious film. It has a lot to say. It, it does a lot. And where I think a lot of ambitious films have reaches that far exceed their grasp, I think that this one largely succeeds with what it sets out to do. I thought... Everything that you just said while watching this movie, I couldn't stop shaking my head and just saying this is a perfect closeout film for February because it does hit all of the buttons that we discussed with those other three films. So fantastic choice. One of the things that I loved about this was the opening scene where you really get immersed in that. Do you want to break that down? After the 20th Century Fox logo. We open on a street in the neighborhood of Garden Heights. It's a friendly, albeit a little disheveled community. Kids are playing in the street. Neighbors are interacting and chatting on porches. Camera glides down to the window of one of the houses where around a table sits a husband, wife, and three kids. A little girl who is nine years old and her two brothers. One of them is 10 and the other is a toddler. And we hear the father say, now when it happens, don't act mad. You got to look calm. Answer their questions, but don't tell them nothing extra. Keep your hands out of your pockets. If you drop something, leave that shit where it's at. He's giving the kids the talk, instructing them all on what to do when they get pulled over by the police. And it's not something, hey, keep this in mind for when you're older. This is for them now. And he even says to them, you're going to be with me one day. Maybe I did something. Maybe I didn't do anything at all. Maybe I did something wrong driving. And we're going to get pulled over. It's absolutely going to happen. And when we do, this is how we're going to act. Using the tabletop of the dining table, he shows them how he would lay his hands on the dashboard and then wants them to mimic him doing it just so that when it happens, they know exactly what to do. And he talks about the Black Panthers 10 point program as their own bill of rights. And he goes, I want you to learn it because I'm going to quiz you. Know your rights, know your worth. And then it fades to that title card. One of his final lines of that scene stood out to me and was just in the running for favorite quote or all time quote, being black is an honor because you come from greatness. Now, just because we have to deal with this mess, don't you ever forget that being black is an honor because you come from greatness. And that just hit. And it was on the heels of the 10 point program of the Black Panthers. I wanted to hear him go through that one by one. He has such a commanding presence 
in that scene and to be the opening, especially in contrast from everything that was so lighthearted outside. It was just such a captivating open. I knew I was in for this movie. I just wanted to stay there and I wanted to listen to him talk without her voiceover for another three to five minutes. I was instantly resentful that we didn't get to spend more time with the kids at that age at nine because we got to move. This is a novel and I've been on record saying countless times, short stories make the best films if you're going to adapt. When it's a novel, there's so much that you lose a lot. And this movie does a really great job of packing a lot in. So I definitely give it credit. But I wanted to hang with those nine-year-olds more. I wanted to hang in that era because at just maintaining fear of the situation at hand being described, but also respect and a little bit of fear of their dad if they weren't going to pay attention. They weren't goofing around. They earned my viewership. They were just so captivating. From the title, we jump to star when she's a teenager. She's played by Amanda Stenberg. In this movie, she is a sophomore in, or a junior in high school. Her older brother is named Seven. It's his last year in high school. And then her Sakani, who's eight or nine at the time, is exactly what we expect a little brother to be. <laughs> Yeah, in every possible way. When we first meet him, he's peeing everywhere, all over the toilet, except for in it. He's <laughs> got terrible aim. Uh, the three kids are getting ready for school. Their mother, Lisa, and their father, Maverick, played by Regina Hall and Russell Hornsby, are nauseatingly flirty, handsy, and affectionate with each other. So their kids are ready to gag, but also secretly adore it. And I love that family dynamic because we learn a lot in that short scene. We learn that Maverick is a former gang member, that her family didn't really want him around, but they made it work and they made it work really well. Something I love that directors do, and it's the reason Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is my favorite Quentin Tarantino film, is they utilize locations as main characters. And everybody, oh, that's just slow film. It's not his best. I didn't get it. It's too long because you just looked at the surface. When you really see L.A. in 1969 as the central character, you watch the movie through a whole different lens. With that in mind, Garden Heights is really the central character of this film in a lot of ways. And it looks like a fun place. It reminded me of where I grew up and just kind of a lower middle class, lower class ish. But they have homes and houses. It is a neighborhood. People just good energy, good spirits. It's a community. She takes us through the neighborhood. We've got the neighborhood barbecue joint. We've got her dad's shop. It's a bodega convenience store, larger than your typical one in a city because we're rural for the most part right now, or we're in an outskirt. And a line that definitely stuck out too, after taking us through all these mom and pop stores that were black owned and run and operated worse. We have a Walmart 32 minutes away. And it's fascinating demographically where Walmart chooses to put its stores. There's a lot of really cool casual drops that you have to really be paying attention to what that means and why it's in there. And that was, I think, the first for me throughout the film. It's like, son of a bitch, 32 minutes away to Walmart, not any closer. Little drops like that, they're not just well done in the sense that they're there. They're well done in the sense that they're not sticking a thumb right in your eye. It's just being dropped factually. This is information, not resentfully. That's up to us to kind of process and decide how we want to feel about it. And that's really a sign for things to come with this movie. Yeah, that's on the ride to school. She describes the neighborhood. She mentions Walmart and she also mentions the high school in Garden Heights. And she says, mom says the high school is where you go to get jumped, high, pregnant or killed. So we don't go there. 
And then it cuts to them being dropped off at Williamson, which is in a much nicer neighborhood. It's a predominantly, if not entirely, all-white school where everyone is college-bound, Star explains in the voiceover. And she does need to slip a switch when she walks in the door and she becomes Star version two. And Star version two being we're in the white school, the private school, and we just don't act antagonistic. We certainly don't act hood or ghetto. We're very affirming and we smile. And you can see her smiling through the pain of repression. So that means she can't use street slang or quote rap lyrics, even if her classmates do. She says slang makes them cool. She says it makes me hood. And she always adopts that polite demeanor, doesn't raise her voice. She doesn't do anything to be mistaken as being confrontational which is a lot of mental gymnastics to do. <laughs> yeah, sadly it is. And as a teenager who loved living triple, quadruple lives, I liked being all kinds of different people and in different groups and not fully seen by these over here and then going to do that over there and nobody ever quite knowing all of me. But I didn't need to do it to survive. And this was relatable in the sense that, yes, as a teenager, we do a lot to try and make sure we're perceived a certain way. But as a white teenager, the relatability certainly ends there. Yeah. And the class issues too with this, I think yeah. just real quick on what it was like to be a Williamson kid in a uniform, going to school dressed a certain way. I hated those kids. It was just, you have money and we don't. It was the rich versus the poor and the private school kids. I did not like what those kids were. And it was nice to kind of watch that and say, you know what? It wasn't that. Those are some ignorant, wealthy ass white kids. And they're portrayed realistically, too. That's a tough line to toe. I don't know what your take on it was, but I just thought this they're not cartoon characters. They're actual kids. I mean, we meet her group of friends who's led by Haley, who's played by Sabrina Carpenter, who's a pop star. I think she's widely known as pop star. But, I mean, she's likable, but there are things that she says that are not likable and she doesn't get it, but she thinks she does. And we all know those people. So Star has a boy, a white boyfriend at school that her parents do not know about. He has never met her parents or gone to her house. So these lives are kept very separate. And he's an interesting character because we're introduced to him as trying to spring a condom on her in the days prior to this day at school. And we're thinking immediately when we learn that about him, like, oh, like, what a prick. But he's a nice kid and he obviously cares about her. And there's a part where he's goofing around dancing in the hall and she goes, people would accuse him of acting black, but that's just Chris. And I really like that they called that out. And there's nuance and it's not that simple. And you know exactly what you're getting into and the sort of things that are going to be explored with lines like that. I loved that line. That was definitely top five for the film because it was important to acknowledge. And he's a really cool character to put under the microscope because he is ignorant, but he tries to learn and be less ignorant. And he is just him. There's a relatability I felt to that kid for sure. And it wasn't because of money or class or upbringing or circumstance. It was just because he's a goofball with a big heart. Yeah. And I said, yeah, all right. That's me. I thought of both of us, but certainly the way I was in high school and continue to be as a grown man, he's just, he does what he does. He doesn't mean anything by it. Could you take it out of context? Sure. You can take anything out of context if you want, but 
he's a lovable goofball. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of a lovable goofball, I think. I hope. So Chris became endearing to me early on, and I rooted for him to not turn into something gnarly because of that identification. Yeah, and I love the the evolution of their relationship and their story. I think it goes in a really great direction. And those are the two worlds we were talking about. Her home, the Black community of Garden Heights, and this privileged community of the Williamson, the private school that they attend. They actually shot them completely differently. They both have their own color palettes. So there's a lot of blue at Williamson, and then there's a lot of greens and browns in Garden Heights. The soundtracks are different. They use old school hip hop and rap for Garden Heights, whereas in Williamson, it's more pop music. And most of Garden Heights is shot handheld where Williamson is on stabilizers or mounts. But the movie doesn't waste any time at school. We fast forward through the school week. It's at the weekend. She's back in Garden Heights. She's partying with her friends. Wearing her sweatsuits, doing her thing. But you can see she's not comfortable there either. That's one of the things I loved about this is she doesn't have comfort within her own skin in either place. She runs into Khalil, who is played by Algie Smith, who's on a show Euphoria that we keep mentioning on every podcast. <laughs> but these two have known each other since they were babies. You get a sense that they're very close, they're very good friends, but they rarely see each other. And I think I have so many friends like that where months will pass, won't see them, and then I'll see them and I'll be like, just old times, which I yeah. think is really relatable. They catch up, they talk about his family, who his, I think his grandmother's struggling, she's sick. He's obviously the man of the house. And in the middle of a conversation, gunshots ring out. Everybody in the party scatters. They run to Khalil's car. She hops in. They drive away. And that's when he starts playing Tupac in the car while they're driving away. And they start discussing the line. Well, she's making fun of him for listening to Tupac because it's dated in old school, which I thought is hilarious. And he schooled her on Tupac. She's giving him shit. And he could have just laughed it off. Come on, that's Pac. But he got serious the same way dad got serious at the dinner table at the beginning of the film. And it was just stern. It wasn't mean. It wasn't defensive. It was just, here's a fact you may not know. And thug being the acronym, it's shortened from a thug life. And I didn't know this acronym, which came from Tupac, which is the hate you give little infants fucks everyone. And he threw down what Tupac was all about and what he was trying to say for that community and how that 20 years ago is still as relevant today. And he also pulls a smooth move while they're while they're talking, where he just pulls over to the side of the road and turns the car off. And it's not a shady move. He's not trying to corner her or anything. It's clear that these two like each other. They're comfortable with each other. And they have this little cute scene that I think anybody who ever was in love as a teenager can relate to because it provokes that sense of nostalgia of being really uncomfortable around somebody because you just had not yet learned how to interact with the opposite sex. It is very lovely and it's a beautiful depiction of people who've known each other since they were babies and have rekindled and reconnected later in life. Don't see each other often, but they have that history. I really appreciated what they did in that scene with those two characters and how they weren't smitten with each other. There was just a deep love that definitely translated to teenage passion that they didn't quite know what to do with. But it was really well played, really well written in that scene. He tries to kiss her. Well, he does kiss her and she kisses him back for a couple seconds and then stops him and says, I have a boyfriend to which he is very understanding, respectful of. She is surprised and says, really? <laughs> And he said 
something to the effect of we've known each other a long time. We have the rest of our lives. We have time. And then turns on the car, pulls away from the curb, and we just see the red and blue lights. And he is pulled over. Star panics immediately, puts her hands on the dashboard just as she was taught to. Khalil doesn't take it as seriously, which makes her worry even more. Cop comes to the window, asks for license and registration. Khalil asks what he's done wrong, which is a perfectly reasonable ask for anybody when they get pulled over. Cop doesn't respond, just demands the license and registration again. And they argue there's contention between them. And then the cop has him get out of the car, which he does, pats him down. She starts recording on her phone. Cop yells at her. She drops her phone. And then after the cop pats Khalil down, he goes back to his cruiser, tells Khalil to wait while he runs him through the system. Khalil ducks back into the car to check on Star, and he's just like, it's no big deal. He's just hanging out. She's panicking, telling him to go back outside. He looks down, sees a hairbrush on the front seat, which I'm guessing he pulled out of the glove compartment when he got his registration, picks up the hairbrush and is immediately shot by the cop. Star runs out of the car and gets to him just in time to watch him die um, painfully. We know something's coming. It's been set up from the opening scene. What did you think and feel about this the first time you saw it? I just remember watching it and knowing that it was going to happen and just dreading that it was going to happen because no one deserves this. But you you are immediately endeared to this this kid. He's a good kid. You know, insinuations of him being a drug dealer. They're also making fun of like how he played Harry Potter as a kid. You just get a good sense of him. And he is not a threat at all. And the fact that he is just like shot is gut wrenching. How about you? Uh, I saw it coming a mile away. She dropped something. One of the first things her dad says, if you drop something, leave that shit. You know, don't, don't. And it's just, okay, things are starting to unravel and you see it coming. The first thing that popped into my head was why didn't he say stop? Why didn't he say hands up? Like the first thing when that happened was address it verbally It definitely made me ask the question, why would anyone want to be a cop? I don't want to be hypocritical and I want to be fair. And I think the only way for me to do that is to acknowledge that I know as much about being a policeman as I do about being black. That's it. Full stop. I don't know what that is. But again, the point to drive home and the point that people have been missing for so long is that being black is not a choice. And being a police officer is. And that's why I raised the point. Why would anyone want to be in this position? It's a very difficult position to be in. And it's a career that people choose. I can't empathize with a choice like that. But at the same time, if this is something people have to do and somebody's got to do it, there is a portion of me that respects a choice that's that difficult to go into that field. So I have very conflicted feelings just about law enforcement in general, but it's not any of disrespect unless I'm being disrespected or other people are being disrespected. That's the thing more than anything else. I really want to echo with this is respect breeds respect, hatred and animosity breed hatred and animosity. And as much as I don't know about being a police officer, approaching situations without expectation of an outcome is in all likelihood a really solid practice to implement going forward for our law enforcement. That was really beautifully said. Khalil dies 
And that causes a chain reaction of things to happen just because we realize just how many people have skin in the game just because these dual lives that Star has been curating perfectly, it all comes toppling down for several reasons. One is no one knows that she is a witness to this. There's also her parents who want to protect her from being a witness. There's the idea of if she is a witness and testifies in front of a grand jury, like what does that mean for her place at school? Her mother has a great line that where she says, I know that they like diversity, but this is too much diversity for them. And probably helps to explain that the Garden Heights community is largely not run, but the streets are run by a gang called the King Lords. And they are led by a man named King, who is played by Anthony Mackie, who I think has been in more movies than Judy Greer. There's insinuations that Khalil worked for him. And if Star testifies, that means that some of his criminal activities may be at jeopardy. And so he does not want her to testify. We learn that Maverick got a store for serving time for something he didn't do for King. And when Maverick came out, the understanding wasn't just you have this convenience store now. It was you are out. You have fulfilled your obligation yes. to the gang and you're no longer affiliated with the King Lords. You are a convenience store owner and entrepreneur. And that is a point of contention for Maverick and Lisa, the parents. Maverick wants to stay in the community and, and build a life there. Lisa wants nothing to do with it and take the family far away because she's just afraid of him getting sucked back into life. What's going to happen to their kids and so on. So Lisa's character is interesting because you don't really know anything on the nose. Lisa's upbringing is somewhere in the middle. It's split where she does talk about how I think she had gone to a private school mm -hmm. When we get to Carlos's house later, it's another magnificent home. And you wonder on a cop's budget, how is this a thing? And we don't know what his wife does or where the money comes from. But the implication with all of these things is that Lisa's family grew up with a lot more money, a lot more means. And so she has the ability in her brain, her thought process to leave. Like, why would we stay when we have the means? And my parents did this for me and we can take it to another level to get our kids into a nicer community. But it's nicer. And you have this back to the open, the community that is their home. And I loved I, there's a cool back and forth where Maverick's not necessarily right. And his desire to stay is based on stubbornness. It's based on fear of change. It's based on human attributes that we can all relate to. It, he's not just right because he wants to stay and raise his family here where they belong because it's their home. It's a lot stickier than that and a lot more nuanced to unpack. But the two of them together, I think, represent a fascinating introspection of what the best form of parenting is, requires people that aren't necessarily yes men for one another. You need conflict and division on certain things so that you can hopefully be open minded enough to learn and unify on a compromised level that'll benefit everybody. And they seem to do that really well. And yeah. on top of it, their passion still ignited all these years later based on that. That's a beautiful thing to watch because it's an example for the kids on what love looks like. It is almost as if Star is raised under the ideologies of both Malcolm X and Martin Luther King Jr. because of the parents. And I think Maverick absolutely represents Malcolm X's approach to civility and violence and defending your, your family. And Lisa comes at it from a more compassionate, forgiving place. I definitely think there are comparisons with that. I agree. Where they go in separate directions is 
it's all based on fear. Mm. And I think what made Malcolm and Martin so special is that they weren't afraid. They believed what they believed. And Lisa's terrified something's going to happen to her daughter. And she just wants to protect her. It's very much not our people. It's our daughter. Whereas Maverick is very much for the people, but he's still afraid of what those choices and decisions might entail as a sacrifice. He's certainly willing to die for his family, but that doesn't necessarily mean that he's willing for them to die. It's like if Martin and, and Malcolm were parents that they were conflicted by. All right, it applies to everything except them because that's my family. We can't fuck with that. And yeah, yeah, it is a cool thing to watch. There's just a lot of interesting character relationships and dynamics. I'm curious as a first time viewer, how did you feel about that? Because I think they do a great job of explaining all of the relationships between people. It didn't feel like I was confused. It wasn't like Oppenheimer where I was like, who's this person? Who's that person? I am a person that just lets the movie wash over me. I trust a director to take me through and explain things to me. And I really appreciated that I wasn't hit over the head and that things unfolded as they needed to. It stayed smart in how it portrayed Seven, the oldest in the family, the brother, being a child of Maverick, the father, and King's girlfriend, Aisha. He was a product of teenage pregnancy, and as was Star, because her mom was 17. I think they were both 17 when she was born. So, okay, now we understand that the son is King's girlfriend's son as well. But Seven has been adopted into this family. So his dad's his dad. His mom's not terribly involved, but she's in the picture. So everybody is in bed together. There is this small community vibe, which made me think, again, this wasn't a California or anything like that. We're in a much smaller, tighter knit community because it seemed realistic. It just seemed like these are things that happen. It didn't seem force fed or convenient for the story. And it didn't for this. Uh, I appreciated how they unpacked that. It was some people would call it ancestral, but it's. Whether it is or it isn't, it's just it's that descriptive term of small town and everybody's kind of been involved with everybody else in some form or fashion. Yeah, I mean, King and Aisha's daughter, Kenya, is Star's best friend. So there's that, too. There's also Carlos, who is Lisa's brother, Star's uncle, is a police officer played by Common. And he was her father figure while Maverick was in prison. I, his relationship with Maverick is strained, to say the least. I don't think that they 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 vibe perfectly. There's definitely some resentment on both sides. And as you said earlier, there's a community here and there's a history to all these characters. And it's really messy. And I don't mean confusing. I mean messy. And I mean messy as a compliment because relationships and family in real life are fucking messy. And that felt authentic to me because I was like, yeah, this feels like life and how this person's brother is that person's friend and how that works, especially in the community. Yeah, relationships are very messy. Human relationships are sticky and complicated. And certainly where I grew up, and I grew up in a town south of Boston with 30,000 people in it. It wasn't necessarily small, but you bet your ass people slept with each other and they bounced around and they had kids with other people and everybody had something to do with everybody else. And so, hell, I felt like I was at home for part of this just based on some of that stuff because it's real life. It certainly was for me. And I think it is for a lot of people. Yeah. And we start seeing wild disagreements. I think that there's a scene where Star and her family goes to see Khalil's family and pay their respects. Obviously, Carlos, who is played by Common, there's a line where he's talking about 
star testifying and her parents are worried about it. And he goes, I know you don't trust this system, but can you trust me for a minute? And I was just like, ooh, like you're asking a lot. <laughs> like, it's just like a lot to ask. And, and what's the difference? Like my biggest yeah. question with that statement is what what's the difference between him and the system? Yeah, I don't think there is one, especially we learn later that there's almost certainly not. But they go home and there's a scene with Maverick and Star where she's playing with her toy wand from Harry Potter, obviously thinking about Khalil because that was one of the things they joked about. And Russell Hornsby comes in and he makes a joke about how Harry Potter is based on gang theory, which I thought was brilliant. It was great. Um, but they get into a discussion about the industrial prison complex and drugs and how they've affected the community and thug life and what those lyrics mean. And we learned that Maverick was in prison with his father, but it also inspired him to want to break that cycle of violence and crime for his family and for his kids and wanting their lives to be better than his. And there's a lot in that scene that I love. And that's where that quote is that I mentioned in Menace to Society, where he's like, this drugs are being flown into our community and I don't know anyone with private chat, do you? While everyone has experienced loss, everyone has lost a parent or a brother or a friend there's something so very deeply personal and specific about that loss or that pain that isn't universal. And we just feel this sense of wanting to share it and express it or articulate it to the world. And you could tell that Star is going through this because one of the things she does is she posts on Tumblr. One of the pictures she posts is the open casket from Emmett Till's funeral. And her friend Haley from school makes a comment on it being like, oh my God, are you serious? Trying to shame her for showing something so graphic. And then there's the funeral where we're introduced to Issa Rae's character, April, who is a lawyer for an organization called Just Us for Justice. She mentions the fact that the police might not be pressing charges against the police officer, mentions that there's a witness. I think this is the first time that the entire community learns that there's a witness and that somebody was with him. So stars a little bit out of there. And she really makes a heavy request for Star to be on television as the witness so that they can try and get a grand jury indictment. There's this moral dilemma she has about one testifying, but also going on television to give an interview just to paint Khalil in the right light to give him a face and a name and a personality and let people know who he was. And the other thing we learn in that scene with Maverick is that he's not the first person that she's seen die. He mentions Natasha at a later time in a conversation with Issa Rae's April that Natasha was a friend she and Khalil had when they were kids who was tragically shot as collateral damage in a drive-by. And Star saw who did it. She didn't want to say anything because she was afraid. And then quickly thereafter, the person she found out died or was killed and then didn't say anything. And it's these two friends that she had that have been killed in her life, one by criminals, one by the cops. And how did face herself for not acting on it the first time with Natasha? And what should she do now with Khalil? And she makes the decision that she's going to go on television. She's going to have her face blurred, but she's going to try to talk about what happened and give him a story. And what happens is what always happens is people are asking about drugs and gangs and the sensational things that the media wants, because a kid who's a good kid who played Harry Potter and wanted to go to Egypt isn't something compelling for the news. No, it isn't. And it really is back to media, which we've discussed this month specifically, too. And 
how devastating the media is to our culture and what is compelling for the masses, quote unquote, in the media's eyes about the black community is about what they did wrong, what they did to deserve this. Well, let's talk more about that. And then sometimes some formats, like if you throw on a CNN or you thought like they're not going to mention the bad, it's all just straight up. This was a, a kid who played Harry Potter. This was a kid with dreams like everyone else. And it's like, both of these things can be true and none of it equals he deserved to die. We talk about how much Khalil was just dragged through the coals because he was a drug dealer. They never say what drug. Pot's not legal down there. Is he selling pot? And if he is, I mean, that's about, we're not far from that being legalized completely on a federal level at some point. Who's to say cocaine's not next? Who's to say? We don't know, but people just want to say, hey, he's a bad guy doing a bad thing. Not how did he get there? Why is he doing it? Is his family in need? Have they been kind of put in a position to fail? The grandmother with cancer is fired from the hospital when they find out she's sick. There's no money. And that's not to defend things that are illegal. It's just more than black and white. Now she has to deal with everybody knowing, even through the blurred face, it's figured out that she was a witness to this. So she's got to deal with that from the police. She calls out his employer, the King Lords, specifically King, the head, as being the biggest drug runners in the neighborhood. And she has to deal with the social ramifications of the white school, knowing that she was witness to this thing and that lost her friend. There's one edit that really stands out. It's just a really sharp cut of the exterior of Star's home directly to a static exterior shot of the home she's in of her friend. Her friend's name escapes me, but magnificent and brick and facade. And it's so tall. It just looks like a museum. It screamed for sure what the differences between Garden Heights and your typical Williamson student's home look like. They're showing the cop on the news and his father speaking about how this has ruined his life. And Haley says, oh, my God, that's so sad for him. Like and she actually says the words his life matters too, to star. And then this is also the same person who, when they're at school, makes a comment like we need to look out for our people to star. And it's just like, oof, like, oof, like, no, no, you don't get it. There was a part of me that deeply enjoyed the scene in which star scares the crap out of Haley and shows her what it is like to be humiliated and beaten down to the ground and scared. There's a great line in a great movie from the 90s where it's like, it's hard to get people's attention. You can't just tap them on the shoulder anymore. You have to hit them over the head with a sledgehammer. And that's really what that was. It was a scene where there's a hairbrush in the side pocket of Haley's book bag. And Star is having her biggest confrontation with her yet. And they've been pretty big to date. And Haley is just towing the line of a really ignorant white racist, whether it's intentional or not. It's just what it is. And she claims to understand. And she's towing that line of daddy's politics. It's a lot of white people and black people, too, I'm sure. But white people, too, that haven't experienced anything that love daddy's politics. So whatever daddy thinks is what they think. And you can tell she's a subscriber to daddy's politics. Well, if he didn't deal drugs, if he didn't have a gun or if he did what you said, well, he had a weapon. It's a hairbrush. And she pulls Haley's hairbrush out of the side pocket and holds it up. Does this look like a weapon? Does it? And she's pretty unflinching at first, but then she raises it higher and steps towards her. And then she starts backpedaling and she keeps raising it up and screaming into 
the point where she's on the ground. She falls and she's on the ground cowering and shaking in fear. She's like, now you get it. Now you understand. And you can tell when you live a life as a child and you don't know shit. I don't think you know shit till you're 30. And then like you start to learn. And then you realize by 40 that the shit you learned when you're 30 wasn't even right. So now you have to unlearn and relearn. Like life is just about learning and unlearning and relearning until you realize you don't know shit. But when you're a kid and you haven't experienced anything, but, you know, recess and protests from the front of your private school, you'd think, you know, some stuff. And uh, you could see in that moment on the ground, I took a lot of pleasure in that, too. And it wasn't just sadistic. It was, no, you just taught her something. This is the first time she's ever felt this and, instead of just waving a flag of what dad believes. And so I'm going to, too. Yeah. I forgot about the protest thing where they skip school in protest of Khalil's death, which is just in shit. front of the building. And when they're like right. hacky sacking, basically, and just kind of hanging out and, and blaring rap music and laughing and giggling. Right. Which I think is there's a term for it. Shitty. <laughs> yeah. Virtue signaling. So, yes, it's a form of virtue signaling. Soon after, she decides to go to the prom with Chris, who she brings home to meet her parents. Her mother already knows. Her father tries to tip him and tell him to leave the neighborhood because she's, he thinks he's the limousine driver that drove her home. <laughs> There's a great exchange where he goes, he's your white boyfriend? She goes, no, he's my boyfriend. And Russell Hornsby goes, that boy is white. <laughs> And he says it perfectly. Chris leaves. It's very uncomfortable. They don't like immediately hug him and accept him into the family. He is feels very uncomfortable and leaves, which I thought was realistic. It was just a really special moment to watch her fearlessness. She says to her father after she brings Chris home and he's like, I haven't been a good example of a black man for you, have I? And she says, no, you've been a good example of a man. And you can tell she's learned not just what it means to be a man, what it means to be a person, a human being that cares with compassion and love and courage. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great one. They there is an attempt on their life where there's a drive by shooting at their house. They're taken to Carlos's, which is a lovely home that's beyond a police officer's salary. And I believe it's there that they have the conversation where Carlos gives his perspective from a cop's viewpoint of how terrifying it is to walk up to a car when you're on patrol. And when you see an object, whether it is a weapon or not weapon, you have a split second to react. Star rebuttals by saying, well, what if it was a white man in a white neighborhood wearing a suit? Like, would you shoot him or would you say, put your hands up? And Carlos says, I would probably say, put your hands up. And she responds basically by saying, don't you see how wrong that is? Did you hear what you just said? And he has, and he knows it's wrong. He replies, this is a complicated world. It's, like, it's not that complicated. First of all, we're back to casting. Common is a very likable person, even when he's stoic. Like he is a likable man and they chose him for a reason. It is very interesting to hear him break down what it's like to go up to a car what it's like, what they're trained basically to look for and to do. I wouldn't say it's in defense of the officer, but he is trying to break down what they are taught. And in doing so, there is a thin layer of defense behind it. But he understands, I think, when he reaches, and I to credit his character for being honest, he could have just said, oh, no, we do the same thing to a white person. He's truthful. And he says, I'd probably say, put your hands up, which is the first thought, as I said, why didn't why didn't they call something out? Why just shooting? 
And the answer in his explanation and to the first two words that came into my head are profiling and anticipation. First of all, the white guy doesn't get pulled over in the Mercedes because they're not profiling. It's just a white guy in a Mercedes. Why would we pull him over? He didn't do anything wrong. So once that's gone, you don't have an incident to begin with. But let's say you do. You pull him over. There's no anticipation. You don't shoot. You say, put your hands up because you're not expecting or anticipating him to be doing something that could put you in harm's way. And I don't care what statistics you look at, what neighborhood you're in, what anything. People need to be treated across the board the same way in similar circumstances, whether it's a high income, low income, black, white, whatever the neighborhood. And there needs to be, like we said, this is a job that was chosen, a uniform response to things. And it isn't to go looking for trouble with folks that are not breaking the law. I want to talk about the scene at the restaurant. The family goes out to dinner, Maverick, Lisa, the kids sitting, having a nice night. I think they're making jokes about how Maverick and Lisa fell in love. And it's noticed that King is in the parking lot with a couple of his thugs. It's a threat on Star's life, more or less. That's why he's standing around menacingly. Maverick tells the family to stay inside, goes outside to confront King. He instigates it. He pushes him. He pushes, he pushes him. him. The cops see it. They roll up. King and his boys leave. The cops come, they grab Maverick and they throw him up against the window right where his family is, where it's just like on display in a very humiliating manner. Cops are just manhandling him and the family goes outside and Russell Hornsby plays that scene so fucking well. The internal life of his character in that scene is there's just so much going on there. Oh, he does a wonderful job, but so does the director. So does the cinematographer. There's no melodrama in this scene. And it's so easy to slip into that. It's almost foreign film where it's just presented in a really beautiful way. And you have that callback to when she drops the phone in the car because the cop told her to. And I think everybody, I certainly have been in a position where I've done something a cop's told me to that I knew wasn't right and then hated myself for it after the fact. And she has this redemption where they tell her to drop the phone. She's recording. She says, I have every right to record this. And she just stands her ground. And it's that reclamation of herself and her rights and her dignity, even amidst her own father's humiliation. And for the rest of the film, that's who she is. And it stops everyone in their tracks every time she kind of stands tall. It's a really cool thing to see. And that's the moment where the black police officer, which was interesting, realizes she's the witness. And he says the words out loud, it's her, she's the witness. I don't know what that means other than the acknowledgement, but they start to look around and realize that everybody's kind of standing around. And we, we have a similar setup anyways to the George Floyd situation where there are a large group of people circling the police to watch what's happening and to start yelling things and kind of saying enough. And at that moment, they stop. It's kind of the alternate ending like of the George Floyd situation where it's like, yeah, they let him go and he lived and he got to take his family home. And it was very impactful. It was a very special scene and to show the unified front they had even where Seven got involved and the cops grabbed him. It was about to get so heavy. Yeah. And I love Russell Hornsby when they go home because you have no idea what's going on with him. And he brings them out on the lawn. He has that conversation with them. He has them recite the 10-point program from the Black Panthers. And then he shows them the tattoo that says, reasons to live give reasons to die. And he talks about their names because Sakani means joy, Seven means perfection, and Star means light. And he was like, I brought you into this world for that purpose. Don't ever not use your voice. 
And I think that's when she makes the decision of that she's going to testify. So she goes to the grand jury, gives a beautiful speech just about who Khalil was. Like he was a kid who played like Harry Potter. He wanted to go to Egypt. Like there's all of these things that you're like, oh, like these are things that many people want. Like it's very relatable. I loved the scene with Lisa. I think she's talking to the star about how she loves Maverick. And but he did all these things and he was in the gang and he dealt drugs. And she's like, love, I'm paraphrasing, but she says love is basically about whether or not you can forgive people's mistakes. How much you love is predicated on how much you can forgive their mistakes. And I love that sentiment. And that's kind of the answer to hatred for me is showing up and saying, I forgive this person. I forgive this person for this. And I need to do that based on love. A lot of times there needs to be justice. I've always said this where it's like, John, you get picked up tomorrow for murdering a family of 12. You're my friend. I'm going to say, you know, there are consequences to what you did and you're going to have to face them. But I will talk to people for the rest of my life as John's my friend. I don't know why he did that, but you're still my friend. There's forgiveness for that, but there has to be justice attached, I think. And there is some of that wrapped up in this where I don't think anybody's going to love this white policeman, but maybe they would for forgive him and find their way to love if there were justice and if the system that created him disciplined him in an effort to change. Ultimately, he doesn't get charged. Right. And that's the biggest issue with this, I think, is that when you're backed by the system and all of the warts involved with it, justice is not reached. And when justice isn't reached, you have people rise up. And again, it's cyclical. Now we go back to the hate you give everyone. It fucks everyone. The hate we give everyone. So now we have this cycle of something rising up, which needs to, by the way, to try and get any sort of change or results, a lack of an indictment breathes more fuel to the fire. So if you really want love, if you really want understanding, if you really want forgiveness, indict. The flames of the fire will calm. They, they won't go out, but they'll calm because justice is being at least discussed. To indict doesn't mean to convict. That's the beginning of the process. But without an indictment, now you're just asking for this to just turn into a five alarm fire. Yeah, it's it's an interesting portrayal of all that across the board. And I really valued the, the story in the film for showing the title of the film, which was so perfect, how it runs through communities, families, societies on the whole. It's a really beautiful sentiment of observation, certainly not a beautiful sentiment of practice, but of observation, I think. Soon after Seven is beat up by King while he's visiting Aisha, Chris and Star go to get him. Seven's mother, Aisha, tells them to take Seven as well as the other two kids with them. And in fleeing the neighborhood, when King shows up, they come across a protest because they find out that the cop who killed Khalil was not indicted. Everyone's marching and Star decides that she needs to march too. And so her and Seven go and join the protests. I, I have to get to Chris because I, again, like I said, with my relatability with that character, probably with more than any other throughout the film, I, I really wanted him to maintain that level of he's a good guy. Keep him a good guy. Let him learn and grow more. It's like watching myself. Like, am I going to be a villain? Oh, my God, don't make me a villain. And they go to the protest. And he's by her side and all hell's breaking loose. And he looks at her and he says, I want to help. What can I do? There is no greater sentence than I want to help. What can I do as it pertains to anything you cannot relate to in a social setting where 
you're not black or you're not Jewish and there's something anti-Semitic happening. Like when you can't experience that firsthand, the statement of I want to help followed by the question of what can I do is the ultimate act of love. And I was like, yeah, like I, I fist pumped, I double fist pumped when he'd said that because it's like he's a good guy. And she said, I need you to take them home. I need you to get them out of here. I'm okay. And he didn't do the tough guy thing of I'm not leaving you here and you're a woman I need to protect and blah, 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 blah. He asked, he got an answer and he said, okay. And he got them out of there and he took them home. And I just thought that was a really beautiful ending to the Chris story. And it just portrayed him as a guy that really was there to help. And I think that's a really important thing in this world is to stay open to the possibility that we don't know things and that other folks have things they can show us, tell us, teach us that we'll never be able to understand or relate to. And we need to listen to them and help where we can. Everyone's peacefully assembling. Then there are cops out in riot gear. Star is handed a megaphone and she says this isn't about how he died. It's about how he lived. And that's the thing that people are missing which I think was a really beautiful moment. And then there's tear gas, all hell breaks loose. The cops are knocking people down. And a couple members of the community recognize Star and Seven, give them a ride, take them to Maverick's grocery store where they get milk to get the tear gas out of their eyes. And the two men leave, Seven and Star in the store. And that is when King and one of his men come to set fire to the store and lock them inside. And Maverick shows up, unlocks the door, lets the kids out. And this is where there's an ultimate confrontation with King. And I think Maverick is at the end of his rope with King. He approaches him, reaches behind his back for a gun, which we immediately see is not there. And then all of a sudden we see Sakani, the little boy, holding a gun at King. And the cops roll up and they draw guns on Sakani. It just breaks your heart to see a little kid with a gun in his hand pointed at somebody and then two cops pointed at the kid because King is standing there with his hand behind his back, but he hasn't pulled the gun. So the cops have their guns trained on the small child and you do see it in their face. Like, do we shoot a kid? There is this just, we don't know what we're doing. And it slow mos again, not unlike the end of Menace to Society, but in a much different ending, Star just steps in between them. And again, she's in her power, man. Like that girl, she is a Marvel superhero where it's just, damn, whether she's handed a bullhorn or she steps in between the line of fire, she is powerful because she's stepped into her power. Yeah. I love Star stepping between Sakani and the cops. And it's obvious that she doesn't do it as a statement, even if it can be interpreted as one. I think her intention is to put herself between her brother and danger. She just loves her brother and steps between them. And the cops either recognize her as the witness, just as the other cops did outside the restaurant, or she's wearing the T-shirt with Khalil's face on it. And that could also bring the cops home to be like, oh, this could go very wrong for us. I think that her love for her brother is a little bit of a miracle. And it also turns out that that same miracle is the only black person in the world that cops can't shoot on that day. And it works. It does. It works really well. And ultimately, her brother drops the gun because he's not going to shoot his sister in the back, which makes the cops drop theirs. We don't know how that scene ends. And I'm glad because I'm sure it would get sticky and with maybe a little paperwork. Yeah. But ultimately, King gets arrested for the arson that he committed. And we kind of trail off to the epilogue of the story. I think it ends in a happy way, but there's a lot going on and there's obviously complexities to it. And I think that these characters have been through a lot and they've earned that much. 
of peace. If they can't have it in the real world, I like that in a the movie they can have it. And it opens up the, a safe space for discussion among people rather than how it could have gone a different way. Yeah, it's it was refreshing to take that ride and have it end where it did rather than end in a way that I just want to start throwing cinder blocks through plate glass windows. It's nice to just have that conversation and have it be relegated more from a place of love than hate. The film does a lot. And I think one of the great things it does is teaches us about things like virtue signaling and code switching and color blindness privilege and color blindness and systematic racism and the industrial prison complex and all of those things, which I think it, and it does it without, again, beating it over your head or preaching about it or forcing it down your throat. I think it's just like here, here's a life. This is how it's lived. And now observe it and learn from it. Yeah. And listen, I sit here in judgment, so to speak, right? Certainly not. I don't feel like it's in judgment, but certainly an observational criticism of a large part of how our world is run. Life is complicated stuff. It's really painful and it can be simplified for better or worse. But these conversations are important for all of us to have to try and help one another create a better place. Are you familiar with Sun Ra? No. Sun Ra was a jazz musician back in the 60s and 70s, and he was a character. Like he would act as if he had come from some other planet and he was here as a musician to deliver the universe's message of love through music. A very eccentric guy, never broke character. But they made a movie about him called A Joyful Noise. It came out in the 1980s. It was a documentary. And there's a scene in where they're talking to him on Pennsylvania Avenue in front of the White House. And he says, I'm standing in front of the White House. And it's funny because across the street, there is no black house. And he says, I don't think that that's right. Everything should have an equal. It should have its opposite. If you're going to have an organization whose entire purpose it is to go out and find bad people in the world and punish them, you need to have an organization that goes out into the world and finds the good people and rewards them. What a concept. I was like, damn, that makes a lot of sense. And I was like, why don't we have that? That's actual checks and balances. Yeah. But again, I don't speak platitudes from a mountaintop. I don't have the answers. I just know what sounds like a better alternative. And we won't know what the cons to that would be until we put it in place. But it's time to try different stuff and see if it's better or worse. You got to throw stuff against the wall to see if it sticks. All right, let's get to categories. Dark Horse That's, performance. What do you got? Man, I just think Common is criminally underrated in this film. I think Common is a good actor and I've seen him in some things that I've liked more than others, but this is probably my favorite common performance. Just being him and he just keeps such a straight face and that scene that he has with Star in the kitchen where he talks about how they're trained, just put it over the top for me. And I just thought it had to be him. I, I do love Common. I love Common and everything. I think he's a fantastic actor and musician. Um, there's a part of me that wants to say Amanda Stenberg, just because she came out of nowhere and is phenomenal in this movie. It's just a joy to watch her listen to people. Yeah. She's so, truly. there's so many scenes where she is not talking and just observing people. And it's so intriguing to, to watch her. And the other person I want to call out is Karen Kendrick, who plays Aisha, who has maybe three scenes, but that scene when they go to get seven and she tells them to take the other kids that they're annoying her. There's a lot going on there. And I think it just, speaks to another mental gymnastics of people trying to balance multiple lives and keep everyone happy in a very painful way. She is powerful. And that is a good performance across the board. Yeah. Uh, 
I definitely want to shout out because you called out Amanda Stenberg as being such a wonderful listener. Again, agreed, but the director did such an amazing job, not only casting people who listen well, but focusing on the listening throughout the film. There's a lot of, you were not on the people who are talking. We're just watching information land. And it's a really powerful choice when you have people who do that well. And, you, and you're and you making a film that's basically trying to get people to listen. Yeah. George Stillman Jr. did a great job. And it's also Audrey Wells was the screenwriter who adapted it. I don't know. Did you read anything about Audrey Wells? Mm-mm. She died the day before the film was released to theaters after a five-year battle with cancer. A day before, which is just like, ugh. But she wrote a great screenplay. It was her idea to put the scene with the Sakani and the gun wasn't in the book. And she wanted to put it into the movie. And she had a conversation with Angie Thomas, who wrote the book. And Angie Thomas was like, I love it. I don't know why I didn't put that in the book. Because it just so perfectly captures the essence of thug life and what it means. But yeah, I wanted to call that out. But George Shulman, you're right, did a phenomenal job. Supporting character, you got? I think I'm going to say Lisa Regina Hall because she upset me and there were a lot of times that that character pissed me off and i i really check in with myself when that happens and i do this whole all right is it the actor's performance that's pissing you off no is it the character's dialogue being poorly written no is it just the behavior of the character as a cumulative whole that's upsetting you because it's not what you believe in this moment? Yes. And when the performer is able to achieve that agitation on me in those circumstances, and I go through that three-point check system, I'm kind of like, damn, she's doing her job. She's doing it maybe too well. It's kind of like Shane in The Walking Dead. Hated him. Yeah. And it was just kind of like, wow, you see what he became as an actor. I had to go back retrospectively and say, did I hate the actor or did I hate the character? It's like, no, I hated the character because the actor was so amazing. And while I didn't hate Lisa, um, she really did push some buttons on me because I, I sided more with Russell Hornsby's character ideologically and what I wanted to see. But she was she was fantastic. I love Regina Hall. Yeah, Regina Hall's great. I love Russell Hornsby is phenomenal. I love it. He was on a show called Grimm that I loved and he was great on that. And he's just phenomenal in this. And it'd be so easy to have a ham-fisted actor in that role just overplay. And he never does. He brings it right to the line. And it's really great. All timeline. Okay. I have a couple things for this. Okay. And I'm I'm going to (laughs) subcategorize in reverse order. The throwaway line that really nailed me was in the protest when everything goes wrong and tear gas is everywhere. Subtly, the sound design on this was beautiful. There's a background character just running by coughing and they've silently almost just whisper, I can't breathe. And it was such a call to George Floyd, to Eric Garner. And it was not in your face. You really had to be in the moment, paying attention to even catch it. That was beautiful. I thought the most haunting line was in reference to immediately after Khalil's death, Star wakes up from a nightmare and Maverick's by her bedside. And he just puts his arm around her and rubs her back and says, nightmares are always the worst right after. Just insinuating he's gone through this so many times. And that broke my heart. But my favorite all-time line for this was, I'm going to break the cycle for my kids. That's a great one. I mean, I do love the private jet line, but I also love the line you brought up where I never set a good example for what a good black man should be. And she goes, no, you didn't. You set a good example for what a man should be. And I thought that was a really great line. Recasting Crispin Glover or Tilda Swinton if you had to into this movie. Man. This is easier than the others. (laughs) It is. It is easier than the others. I think 
even if we were to get in a time machine and get a young Crispin Glover, I would not cast him as Chris. I do wish we had a headmaster of the school to cast Tilda Swinton as. That would be a lot of fun. I think if we had to do it here, and I really like this cast, I would put Tilda Swinton as the interviewer when she's face blurred and keep her there. Yeah, that's what I was thinking as well. I think either of them. Yeah, Tilda Swinton would have been definitely great in, in the interviewer role. Donna and Diane, how would they feel about this? How would Diane feel about this movie? My mom would really like this movie and not in a way that she would enjoy it, but in a way that it would be palatable due to a, a lack of extreme violence that the other movies, I think, outside of Creed, this has a different tone. And I think it's something mom would enjoy. I hope she she checks this one out. I think she would enjoy it. Yeah. And since your favorite Mother's Day movie is Funny Games to sit down and watch Diane with, I'm sure that she would appreciate this instead. Uh, Donna would love this movie. She would absolutely love it. Uh, I think she'd enjoy a lot about it. And I think she would have similar thoughts to the ones you did about how life is just about learning. And I feel like that's a lot of what this movie is, is just there's a lot to learn. And it never stops. It never stops. Yeah. Um, Finally, Shock Meter. This is a great movie that I loved. It's a four star I think it's more important than it is great. I think there are some, because again, it's based on a young adult novel. While it's so rich, dense, and packed, some things suffer from from me being able to put it in a masterpiece level, but that doesn't make it not great. And the importance of it certainly thrusts it into that category, along with the performances and the directing. So I'm going great, and I loved it. Yeah, I'm going to go with great and loved it too. I had the exact same feelings that you did, and it's why I mentioned... It's a very ambitious movie. It tries to do a lot. And I think when movies do that, they very often fail and just fall into static where they juggle a lot of things and they juggle them well. Nailed it. And that's it. That's it for The Hate You Give. That's it for The Hate You Give. That's it for Black History Month, the month of February. Our picks are in. The pods are live. We hope you've enjoyed them. And we're open to The Hate You Give. If you want to reach out to us at therealaddictspodcast at gmail.com for something longer and more formal in the way of love or hate. And if you want to keep it clean and quick, you can always go to our The Real Addicts Podcast Instagram account. We're also on TikTok, Facebook, and wherever else you find your nonsense. But that's it for us. We have March being announced very soon. It's going to be exciting with a little more levity, a little more laughter. And we're hoping to have you along for the ride. So thanks so much for sticking with us through February. And we'll see you next month. Yeah, thank you. Make sure you address all of your death threats to Matt and all of your love letters to me. I'll take it. 